get a message to you The easiest thing just comes to me And it comes to you Hi, and welcome to another episode of Now You're Talking with D. If you've already listened to episode one, thank you so much. You can skip ahead about 20 seconds. But if you're new to this podcast, let me tell you briefly a little bit more about it. I'm D, and I host this podcast, which is about dynamic, authentic voices from across the world talking about subjects from the silly to the serious. This month's episode is slightly fun and slightly serious. It's all about wine and specifically one woman in wine. I speak to someone who is an advanced sommelier in the United States. She's worked at Babo and Cut by Wolfgang Puck, both in New York City, but she now co-owns a boutique wine shop in Denver, Colorado. Just 32 years old, this woman has risen through the ranks and really knows her stuff. Unfortunately, she was also diagnosed with ALS in late 2019. ALS, which is also called Lou Gehrig's disease after the famed baseball player, is a neurological disease that affects thousands of people around the world every year. It starts insidiously with muscle stiffness and twitches, but soon escalates to a loss of mobility, difficulty swallowing, and slurred speech. Most people die within five years of a diagnosis as there is no known cure. We'll let you know how you can help find a cure for this terrible disease at the end of the podcast. Now, before you hear from my guest, I will talk a little bit more about wine and why I wanted to talk about this subject for episode two. I started my journalism career at Wine Spectator magazine many, many moons ago. I was hired as an editorial assistant. It was a wonderful job as it allowed me to learn the ins and outs about wine, from harvesting to the different varietals to what to pair with what dish. It was something I never, ever imagined I would ever learn, but I grasped onto it and went with it. Now, to many people, wine can seem intimidating. I know it was to me when I was first learning. Now, while there is a lot to learn about wine, you don't have to be an advanced sommelier like my guest to know the good from the bad. Here are just a few basic pointers to remember. There are basically five different types of wine. White, red, rosé, sparkling, and dessert. Brevity here, we're only going to be focusing on the first four. Now, red is made from the dark grapes, and white is made from the green grapes. Sparkling wine, which is different from regular wine, thanks to carbon dioxide, which creates the fizz, comes from mostly white varietals. And contrary to what you might think, rosé wine is not white and red wine mixed together in the barrel to create a pink wine. That distinctive pink color comes from the skins of red varietals, and the darker the rosé, the longer the skins have been allowed to remain during fermentation. Now, what's the difference between a dry and a sweet wine, and what do we mean by light, medium, and full body? Dryness refers to the fact that there is little to no sugar left during fermentation. Sweet wines are just that. They tend to be more sugary. And the body refers to the amount of alcohol in the wine. The more alcohol, the richer the viscosity and mouthfeel. Lighter-bodied wines tend to be more crisp and refreshing and pair well with a variety of foods, whereas a more full-bodied wine, because of its richer texture and tannins, pairs better with a heavier dish, i.e. a Cabernet Sauvignon with a steak. Examples of light-bodied red and whites include Pinot Noir and Pinot Gris. Medium reds and whites include Shiraz and Chenin Blanc. And full-bodied reds and whites include Cabernet Sauvignon and Chardonnay. 
These last two are the two most popular and well-known varietals in the world. You'll probably be able to find a bottle of them at your local wine store. Now for me, I'm a big lover of red rosé and sparkling wine. My nickname is another word for champagne, which is my absolute, absolute favorite wine. I can drink it anytime with anything. I don't care what the naysayers say. But I often state that Cabernet Sauvignon, which is the most popular varietal in the world, is the supermodel of wines. You can't help but notice it as it's so bold and audacious. But I prefer the boy next door, which is the Pinot Noir. It's just as lovely as the Cabernet, but a bit more approachable. Now my guest and I will discuss wine varietals, including our love of champagne, what is the most overrated wine in the market today, what to look for if you are on a budget or want to splurge, as well as how to start a wine collection. Now one last reminder before we start, please like, subscribe, and review my podcast on Stitcher, Google, Spotify, etc. And thanks so much for listening. Now on to the show. Hi, and welcome to the next episode of Now You're Talking with Dee. With us today is Sally Stewart, who is a sommelier and wine merchant owner in Denver. Say hi, Sally. Hello. Hello. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, For those who don't know, uh, Sally is a woman in wine, very, very knowledgeable about wine. One of um, those people that you give her a question and she's got an answer for anything wine related. And the amazing part about it is that she's so young and has risen through the ranks so quickly as a woman in wine, which is very difficult to do even in this day and age. And we'll talk a little bit about that as well as about um, wine, how to collect wine, how to get started, a bit more about her career um, and you know what what's so great about wine, why you should be drinking wine versus and other cocktails, which, which are nice. We're not going to degrade them, but wine is something really special. So tell me what, what is it about wine that makes it something that you are just so into and so passionate about? And how did you, we'll we'll get into your career and stuff like that, but what, what brought you into the wine world? Like when did you first taste the first glass of wine? Well, um, my first glass of wine was actually in college. Um, I went to Costco and picked up something they had on the shelf there. And it was nothing fancy, um, but it was interesting. It was intriguing and kind of sparked an interest. Um, And my degree that I was going to school for um, is uh, hotel and restaurant management. Mm -hmm. So I thought I wanted to be a manager in a restaurant or a hotel. Um, so I figured I'd go, I'd go down that path. Um, but my senior year, I was 21 <laughs> and I had an extra elective I had to take. And I found one course that was brand new called Wine Appreciation. <laughs> so I thought that it sounded really fun, like it was gonna be easy. And turns out it was actually really hard. <laughs> I learned a lot and actually learned how to taste wine and understand like what I was tasting <clears throat> and why everyone was different. Yeah. And I think that really truly sparked my interest after that. I was working in a restaurant at the time and 
I was so excited with all my new information that I offered to train the staff there. I was a bartender at the time. And so I was just using my knowledge to expand others' interests and try to get everyone as pumped up as I was. Now, the Costco wine, can you talk a bit more? Do you remember what the wine yeah, was? The I do. Yeah. Are you embarrassed <laughs> to say what it is? Uh, is it available I mean, Costco? yeah, it's, it's nothing that... <laughs> It's something that I was proud of. Mm -hmm. So it's a white wine. It's actually by Fedster, which mm -hmm. is a California brand. Um, definitely a bulk wine brand, unfortunately. And the grape was reverse wiener of all grapes. <laughs> and it was really interesting to me because it was so floral and kind of off dry. <laughs> and I never had something like that. It was like, this is like adult Kool-Aid. I was like, I, I, can, I can appreciate this. Right, right. It's interesting that you, um, that you say Gewürztraminer because that's kind of one of those varietals that doesn't get a lot of love these days. Everybody oh, yeah. into the cabs and the Chardonnays, obviously, if they know anything about wine because those are the two most popular, but uh, a Gewürztraminer got you into wine. Now the, the wine course, um, did you feel like you learned a lot from there and that just... The natural segue of going into bartending and, and teaching other people about it? Or was it like this, I got the basics and now I'm going to read up more and get more knowledge? What, what was it? Yeah, the wine course is actually really, really helpful and <clears throat> has so much information. So it was a two-part course where we had a lab um, where we tasted wine. We um, went through the deductive method of visually assessing it smelling it and kind of like discerning it and what's different about it, kind of breaking it down objectively. Um, and the other portion of the class was like the study part <laughs> where it was all the regions and names and years and dates and important people mm -hmm. and history, which was difficult at first, <laughs> but um, it really was a fantastic building block um, to learn about wine and truly, really elevated my knowledge quite a bit uh, for yeah. someone who never had wine before. And then going into this course, I had way more knowledge than I ever thought I would. So you had never tried wine before this, uh, this course or before the course? I, I had tasted wine at work or... Um, I mean, I'd been working in restaurants for already years at that point, mm -hmm. um, but I never really sat down to a glass of wine or really bought wine before. Mm -hmm. I really didn't drink much before that. Um, but after the course, <laughs> that changed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And what did you, after you started uh, taking the course and then you bartended and you taught other people, did you discover what your palate really liked? Did you quickly discover like, yeah, I like drier wines. I like like a full bodied red versus a medium bodied white or what have you, or did you just say, I, I like them all? It's a really good question, actually. It's kind of funny. I think about that often. Um, my palate at the time was more tend towards lighter bodied, kind of more aromatic, thin skinned grape varieties, like Pinot Noir, Grenache, um, Sanso, Gamay. And to this day, those are really my favorites still. <laughs> I 
Um, at the time, actually, I remember, I remember tasting a Chardonnay to Pop, and it was just like so astringent and high alcohol and <laughs> something that I really didn't have the taste for. And it re- I had no idea how people enjoy that. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, can you talk uh, a bit more about, sorry to interrupt you. Um, can you talk a bit more about these, these flavor profiles that you're talking about? Because a lot of the people listening might not know what astringent means might sure. not know what a dry versus a sweet, like when people say dry, they're thinking like, oh, is it going to be arid? Like, what do they mean by dry? <laughs> what do they mean by sweet? What do they mean? Like when people talk about champagne, they're like, oh, I don't like it because it's sweet, but they don't, they don't know that a real champagne is not sugary, like a cook's. <clears throat> you should never drink unless you want to get drunk. But can right. you describe a little bit more about, um, uh, you know, you seem to have caught on pretty quickly about like, you know, uh, what you liked and what the, you know, mm-hmm. flavor profiles were and what an astringent or t- too much tannins and all that stuff, you picked it up pretty quickly. But for people listening, they might not know, they're kind of intimidated about wine. So yeah, a bit more about that. Sure. Um, so one thing I noticed in my course in college was that <clears throat> the wine that I enjoyed the most was California Pinot Noir. Mm-hmm. And it was under 20 bucks. And one of the reasons for that was because it was so soft and um, kind of reminded me of something that was like, if I were to think about what fruit profile it reminded me of, I think of strawberry, raspberry, like red fruits, like red berries, and kind of like rose petals. Um, and astringency is a good way if you're thinking about like, a really strong steeped tea, mm-hmm. kind of like bitter, um, almost like um, mouth drying kind of sensation. That's tannin. And also the same thing exists in walnuts, actually. Right. So if you eat like a walnut or a really strong black tea, that's the same type of tannin that's in red wine. Um, yeah, so if you don't really enjoy strong tea, black coffee, um, like really kind of bold flavors like that, then you might want to start off with a lighter a lighter wine, like a thinner skinned grape variety, like Pinot Noir, Grenache, Frappato, mm-hmm. which is kind of unusual red grape from Italy, but it's very kind of rem- reminiscent of Pinot Noir. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. No, that's all really, really great. So what do you think is the biggest myth about wine that people have? Um, well, I, I kind of want more people to know that just because the brand is expensive or marketed or they see it everywhere, that does not mean it's good quality wine. Um, uh, and the more expensive wine is does not necessarily correlate with a better wine. Right, right. And do you have any recommendations on some, say, under $20 bottles? I'm sure at your wine shop, you have that. Uh, You probably run the gamut from inexpensive to super expensive. But um, if you were going to a Costco, if you were going to your local supermarket, uh, here in Europe, you know, the wine is sold in the supermarkets. In the US, it's kind of different. are there any general rules that people should go by by 
to choose something that they know is going to be good <clears throat> if they grab it and they don't know anything. Yeah. Well, I say go for the price point between $10 and $30. Mm -hmm. And in that range, I think it's really safe to be a really good quality. Um, it's not trying to be something too fancy. And generally speaking, it's probably pretty good. Um, as a general statement, I think. Um, and mining the supermarket here in the States is tricky. Um, there's mostly big brands and supermarkets here. So I just recommend people to try to go to a local wine shop or something, a less of a big kind of box store kind of thing. But some great fighters too look for that can be really kind of promising and crowd pleasing without being too pricey are, um, well, Beaujolais from France, mm -hmm. um, the Gamay grape, they tend to never be mass produced, um, don't have many additives or high production method. They don't have a ton of chemicals or like pesticides added. Um, Beaujolais is a great choice um, and it tends to be inexpensive. If you're doing something domestic from the States, um, California is tricky to get some good value out of. So I tend to oh, try to look for Oregon or Washington wine. Right. They tend to be better for the value. Um, and they also usually are smaller production. Yeah. Is it because California is just so, it's not what it was, say, in the 70s or 80s when their <laughs> wine business was starting to really grow? Now it's just like conglomerates and big producers, and they're just churning out um, wine by the gallon versus an Oregon or a Washington or some of these other states that are that are coming up in, in the wine world. Yes, exactly. Unfortunately, California tends to be more focused on branding and marketing, mm -hmm. and that's where the majority of their money goes to, um, as opposed to quality groups and um, sustainable and responsible farming. Um, that's not to say all California wine is like that. Um, there are a lot of producers I love that are dedicated to making good wine for a great price um, without having, you know, hundreds of tanks that are bigger than a, a football field yeah. in their, yeah. in their uh, production facility. Um, there's a producer called uh, Folk Machine, mm -hmm. and he's been making wine since 2005. And everything he makes is just so wonderfully, refreshingly, just delicious with that high price point. And he has several different brands for um, different styles. And they're just, there's just good wine at a good price and sustainable. And that's one of the things that I love about that. So you're being into sustainable wines and-, and Oh yeah. Promoting I that. mean, yeah. The thing about big brands is they're not sustainable. It's become pretty clear that we have to really take care of our earth and our planet. And these massive, just gigantic vineyards that span hundreds of acres, you know, they're, they're 
they're otherwise dead land. You know, they're, they're vineyards that have pesticides, chemicals, they have no diversity in the life, no cover crops, no animals, and they're harvested and sprayed with all kinds of, you know, anti-molding, anti-mildew kind of things. And all that ends up in your wine at the end. So it's, it's difficult to see that being something that we can continue um, yeah. without having some issues. Yeah. Now, sustainable doesn't necessarily mean organic, everybody. So there's there's quite a difference there. Sustainable, what what would be the de definition of a sustainable wine or a sustainable winery in your eyes? To me, sustainable means something that can be repeated comfortably without using excessive um, chemicals or... Um, uh, so, I, you know, there's a lot of issues with um, drainage and water usage and biodiversity. <clears throat> so the, the ecosystem is really important to keep in mind the animals and plants and flora and fauna that naturally would occur in an area. Um, in these massive produced vineyard sites, there's nothing there besides the vines that are being kept alive by irrigation and fertilization and chemicals. And <clears throat> so sustainable is something that is recyclable. They're using minimal water, minimal waste, <clears throat> minimal chemicals. They try to recycle what they can. They have, <clears throat> they have employees that they, they have come back every year. And kind of the entire factor of the ecosystem is something that is renewable. Right, right. That makes total sense. So you, back mm -hmm. uh, earlier, you were talking about some unusual grape varietals. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows about the cabs and people know about the Pinot Noirs and the Pinot Gris and the Chardonnays. What are some kind of unusual grape varietals that you're excited about or that you think people should <clears throat> try or that they're planting more of, say? Well, um, one of my favorite regions is Italian wine, and in my shop, one of our favorite focus points is Sicily, and I have the pleasure of going there um, in 2017, and it was just amazing. And one of their indigenous grape varieties there is Norello Mascalese, mm. and it's grown on Mount Enna which is an active volcano on Sicily on the Eastern coast. And it's literally volcanic soil that's higher elevation right on the Mediterranean. So it's a really unique climate. Um, and the grape is thinner skinned. <clears throat> so you're getting less of that high concentration of color. So it's gonna appear lighter in color than say, Cabernet or Merlot. Mm -hmm. The flavor profile is just so layered and nuanced, like, like that volcanic soil comes through. Um, there's like pomegranate and like black cherry and <clears throat> raspberry, kind of like bright, delicious red fruits, that volcanic minerality, and this kind of refreshing 
like juicy uplifting acid. So <clears throat> to me, they're so interesting to pair with food and to sip on their own. And the white grape on that island is actually really delicious too. It's called Catarato. Well, the other one. Mm -hmm. And Caracante are the two main grapes of Etna, white grapes. And they're, they're just so refreshing and delicious. It's like you're capturing the Mediterranean sun in a wine bottle. <laughs> right. That's a nice way of putting it. Um, did you know about these varietals before you went to Sicily or did you discover them when you went to the different wineries and they were like, hey, we've got this, we're planning this, X, Y, Z, and that's when you tried them for the first time? Well, yeah, actually one of the biggest reasons we went there was because we had the wines before. Um, working in restaurants in Manhattan, I was working at Pavo in Greenwich Village and they had one of the best wine lists, Italian wine lists in the entire world. And one of their strongest sections that I had really never dealt with before was Mount Etna in Sicily. And I tried a couple of producers there that blew my mind. <laughs> the wines were so unique, so, so delicious and so actually affordable compared to say their Tuscan counterparts or their Piedmont um, equivalent that it was something that I was really, really looking forward to going to the source of. Right, right. Now going to your, um, we're gonna talk a little bit about your career. So you worked as a bartender and then I know you, I know Sally from Portland. Uh, I went to a restaurant one night for dinner and her lovely boyfriend was the one who was serving me and we started talking and then Sally showed up. I think after you were working somewhere else, you showed up and we all just became friends that way. Um, mm -hmm. It was really nice to meet people in Portland who were as interested and as into food and wine as I was because it's a very much a beer city, very much a beer city and oh, yeah. such a great wine region surrounding it. It was just surprising to me that half of the people I met had never even had a glass of wine outside of a cook mm. or something. Um, uh. At that time you were, um, were you, were you just a waitstaff at the restaurant or were you a sommelier or what were you doing at the time? Yeah, it's actually kind of a fun story. Um, so Stephen and I were living in Chile um, prior to Portland, Oregon, and we were running a guest house in Chile. So when that ended, we moved to the States again. And we picked a random city to move to, and it was Portland. <laughs> That's <And> random. <laughs> it really, well, we had, we were living in San Francisco before that, and it was great there, but we kind of wanted to see something else, and we loved the Pacific Northwest, and so we ended up going to Portland. I had actually never been there before, so we just moved there. Um, and the Pacific Northwest is beautiful. Um, the outdoors are wonderful. The food scene is just delicious and the seafood's amazing, as you know. <laughs> yeah. But um, so I actually found a Craigslist ad that was looking for service for a fine dining restaurant. And I inquired and sent my resume over and I met the guy and he owned a really cool pool bar uh, that was in downtown Portland called... Um, Uptown Billiards. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Which is unfortunately since closed. Um, but it was a really cool concept where he had 
like a like a tasting menu in a pool house with like first growth Bordeaux and like really cool wines and like wine pairings all inside of a bar that had pool tables. So that was really interesting. But the main focus he was actually doing was opening up a restaurant in Lake Oswego, which is like um, a wealthy kind of higher end. Yep. Of Portland, um, yeah. south of it, and it was it's called Tavern on Cruise. And I was working um, at the pool place until the restaurant was coming in, um, to like more opening, like um, like until it was built. So I uh, Kent had me design the wine list, um, come up with the wines by the glass, and kind of design the wine program there. So I got to buy um all the opening mine for the wine list and design the wine menu and price everything and do all the training for the restaurant for the staff but at the same time was i was a server and a bartender there so i did kind of a lot of things and how old were you at the at the time um, that was 2015 i was can't count. I was 27. 27. So you guys, 27. Doing all of this at 27. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, that's amazing. That's amazing that they gave you the, um, the, the power to do that as a woman in wine and as somebody who maybe wasn't as experienced as some of the other people. It was like the passion was there and some of the knowledge was there. Um, mm-hmm. And then talking a bit, a bit more about your career, then you went to, you went to the to Colorado was it yeah after that I remember you went to some ski resort I think yeah yeah that uh, that was amazing um so Portland was fun and everything but it really didn't have the I wanted to go more I wanted I wanted more Mm -hmm. so we uh were looking around for jobs on our wine website called Gilsom and there was a job posted in Telluride, Colorado for two sommeliers who were preferably had skiing experience. They could work on the mountain as the sommelier uh, at the ski resort. <laughs> and at the time I had never skied a day in my life, um, but we applied anyways. So it's like, so me and Steven applied as a couple. So we thought that was kind of interesting and see what would happen. And Turns out they loved the idea of us having uh, the experience and kind of being coming together as a pair. So they hired us and we moved out there and drove in our little Fiat 500, the Cinquecento, mm-hmm. <laughs> picked up all our stuff and drove to Telluride from Portland, Oregon. And so I was a sommelier at All Reds, which is their fine dining kind of. Um, flagship restaurant on the mountain mm-hmm. 10,500 feet above elevation and I my view every day was this amazing panoramic view of the town of Telluride and the San Juan mountains in the background and I was selling amazing Italian wine and Bordeaux and California wine and I it was a really really great experience 
Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like it at the right time. And then you went on to New York and then you worked at Babo and you worked at Wolfgang Puck's restaurant, correct? Yeah. Uh, was the Wolfgang Puck before the Babo or was Babo before the Wolfgang Puck? Babo was before. Okay. Yeah. I was at Babo for about a year and um, it, for the Battalion Bastiange group, which is now dissolved for various reasons. Um, yeah. But I actually really enjoyed working there. The restaurant was this machine of over almost 20 years of history and it was one of the trendsetters for Italian restaurants in Manhattan at the time. And I was the only female sommelier there <laughs> and one of two female staff members, so. In the entire place. That's right, yeah. I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. So yeah. talk a bit about that as a woman in wine. Um, there have been a lot of stories, especially, you know, the one I'm going to talk about recently mm -hmm. in the last year or so. I talk mm -hmm. about sexism and harassment in, in the wine industry. I mean, it it's prevalent throughout every industry. It's no surprise, uh, but especially this industry, which is very, very male dominated, um, where women have they say a better palate, um, better taste buds and what have you. Let's not get into the science of it, but um, women are, are kind of put on the wayside and kind of scoffed at us. I've seen it where a woman sommelier comes out and presents you know, the wine and, and the party that's dining is just looking at, looking at her like, are you for real? Like, mm -hmm. where, is, where is that like crusty old French guy and like a seersucker <laughs> who, who's, you know, pontificating about how great French wine is. Um, can you talk a bit about the sexism in the industry? Were you, were mm. you a recipient of that? Did you see it happening to other people? I don't want to get too involved into it. If you don't want to talk about it, that's fine. Um, but however much you want to talk about it, because I think it is an important subject um, to address in some way, but can you talk a bit about that? And, and if you had the struggles to be recognized on par with, with Steven, your partner, who, who is a male in, in the industry? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> yes, first of all, it is extremely important to mention. Um, I mean, when, my, when I was first starting on restaurants, um, the discrimination was blatant. And I learned very quickly that I had to um, step it up a bit and develop a thick skin and almost like ignore certain comments from people who were my peers or my management. Um, uh, but as I became a sommelier, um, I think people really did treat me differently because it was a woman. Um, I had so many guests that I would come up to at their table and Baba had a very mature clientele, um, kind of in their uh, 15 up kind of age range. Um, so I, I'd bring the bottle up to a table and they'd just say, um, yes, can you send the sommelier over? I was like, I, I am the sommelier. <laughs> and they're like, why do you, you really, you really look old enough to drink. And I'm like, ha well, uh, that's funny. I mean, I just ignore that and continue. And, and they're like, well, you know, I don't see many female sommeliers, you know, it must be uh, really, uh, really hard. I'm like, well, not really, actually. I'm, I love what I do and I'm really good at it. So, 
and you know they're like they, they didn't sometimes guess didn't mean harm by that but with their with the way with, with they were phrasing questions it was definitely insinuating that i was lesser than a male sommelier um but there was a lot of rewarding experiences with that too um and honestly my time at the babo restaurant group um was great mario batali unfortunately had a reputation of being inappropriate um i never experienced that but um i could absolutely see where that kind of mentality was branching from and i, I hate to say it but in many restaurants there's inappropriate flirting and kind of like touching or word, words that shouldn't be used or even excessive compliments that really are unnecessary. Mm -hmm. And something that I found helpful for me was just to be a kind of an asshole back to them. <laughs> uh, I had to develop a thick skin and just kind of like put my head down and rely and trust in the fact that I knew what I was doing. I was better than most men at it and I deserve to be there more than them in some ways. So I think my confidence and my knowledge really kept me in the right state of mind to handle even the most inappropriate conversations that I unfortunately had to get in with some people. But I, I overall feel pretty lucky that nothing worse than that happened. Um, but I did see some firsthand experiences that we're not so fortunate from some yeah. of my coworkers. Yeah. yeah. It's unfortunate that you had to that you said that you had to develop a thick skin to sort of kind of laugh it off or or be like, you know, none of the guys sort of thing because yeah. I worked at a men's magazine and I was the only woman on the men's magazine forever. They still don't have another woman editor and um, it was a lot of the same sort of thing, you know, the kind of mad men, like, oh, boys will be boys thing. And, and you have to develop right. skin. But when you look back on it, you're like, why, why did I have to develop a thick skin? Like, they should not have said what they said or done what they did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's something that everybody needs to address in whatever industry that it's just, it's 2021. We can't tolerate that anymore. Um, mm -hmm. And call it out when, when it's done. And it may not have been done to you. Um, and you can say that like you said, um, like I said, but um, be supportive of the people who, who have that. Um, going back to when you were a sommelier, what were your favorite food and wine pairings? Were there, is, are there certain wines mm -hmm. that go with a certain food that are just iconic, like say oysters and Chablis or something like that, um, that, <gasps> that people should absolutely, absolutely pair a certain um, dish or a certain um, food item with a certain certain wine. Yes, uh, it's funny you mentioned oysters. I was actually just thinking that um, one of the most profound pairings I ever had was um, oysters with mignonette. Very simple. Mm -hmm. uh, they were West Coast oysters, and the wine was a vintage Champagne, um, 2002 Lanson Gold Label. <clears throat> which just really is not like a really fancy, like expensive champagne, but the fact that the wine had like kind of, so when champagne gets older, 
and when mine gets older, um, it develops sort of like uh, layered and kind of depth of flavor that young mine just does not have. Kind of like a cheese in some ways. So when you have that wine that has that layered minerality, that kind of like funky, sort of more concentrated earthiness with that time in the bottle, the creaminess, the the fact that the fruit profile in the wine is more developed, um, all those layers and nuances, when you pair that with a, something so simple like an oyster, it truly elevates that flavor beyond what the food is capable of. So that's one of my favorite pairings actually. <laughs> and I, I think um, something people often overlook is dessert wine pairing. Mm. And people are like, oh, I don't like sweet wine. Well, <laughs> uh, if you have not had um, like a sticky toffee pudding and like a, a momsy Madeira and then you truly have not experienced dessert. Really? <laughs> you have a chocolate souffle with a, <clears throat> with a vintage port, then you truly have to try that. There's nothing that I can possibly say that could do justice to how delicious that pairing is. And it's, <clears throat> it's one of those things that you can finish your meal mm. on such a high note and dessert wine really does do that for you yeah yeah so do you have like a, a, a do you have a favorite wine in each varietal or do you just have an overall favorite wine I mean is there mm -hmm. something or can you recommend a great cab a great chardonnay some other reds and whites and rosés and a great champagne for for the people out there no matter the price point doesn't matter it could be, it could oh. be whatever you think is the best you know <laughs> well um you know, there's not a ton of California Cabernet that has a great value to it these days, unfortunately. So I know many people um, often ask me for like a Cabernet in California, but I tend to introduce them to Bordeaux, where the birthplace of Cabernet is. Mm -hmm. So I can send them to France and not, not physically, I can vicariously send them to yes. a bottle of wine. We're in COVID after all. I know, exactly. So one way to travel is to taste um, the fruits of that season that are in the bottle. So if you enjoy something fuller and richer, um, like a darker, more like round mouthfeel kind of red wine, I think um, like a left bank Bordeaux, which is on the left side of the Jordan River. Um, and one of my favorite under the radar producers is Sociano Malay. Um, and they are in the uh Medoc region on the Lafay. They're predominantly Cabernet. But if you ever see one of those wines, they are <laughs> exceptional for the money and they age so well. And they're just really just magical. Um, but what I like to sip, um, I always kind of craved, like I said, my, the wines that I loved, you know, 14, 15 years ago are kind of still to this day, the wines that I enjoy. And uh, that's kind of more lighter, more softer, less astringent, which is equivalent to tannin. 
Um, I, I love Cecilia and Edna Rosa, which is that Norella Musculista grape. I love mm-hmm. those. Um, my favorite producer on the island is hard to say, but <laughs> I think if there was like one overall amazing producer on Manetna, um, I would say it's Girolamo Russo. Um, I've been to the winery and met the winemaker, saw how he makes the wine and it's honest, it's real, it's truly an art form and the wines are exceptional and they're all very specific to where they're grown and mm-hmm. it's everything I love about wine. Um, my favorite champagne, um, I love sparkling wine so much. Um, I know, we have that special bottle, Dom Perignon. So and I was actually thinking about that this morning. <laughs> yeah, were you? I still have the the boomerang video of the two of you clinking your glass with my glass. Um, but just a backstory for anybody, even though it's talking about me again, and it's more about Sally. But uh, when um, years ago, I was gifted a, a bottle of 1999, 1999 vintage Dom. And I always swore I would not open it until I got engaged or I got the most fabulous new job and new life. Unfortunately, I never got engaged, but I did get the fabulous new job and new life in Germany. And I was living in Brooklyn at the time. And I put up a Facebook post to everybody in my friend list in New York and said, I have like 12 bottles, 13 bottles of wine that I need to get through in the next like day and a half who's coming over and there's a special bottle waiting. And the only people who actually came were Sally and Steve. And (laughs) we drank a lot of wine and then we opened up that dom and we took video and pictures. And my sister to this day is still so bitter about it. She said, you've been hiding out on me. You've been hiding (laughs) out on me. I'm like, look, it was one of the two. And the one that I wanted to happen never happened. So, uh, you know, had to break it open, but, um, you remember that day and that, you know, Dom is, Dom is one of those names everybody knows and they know about champagne. They're like, oh, Dom Perignon, okay. Um, and it's good. It's really, it's really fucking good. Uh, and that wine was really fucking good, but um, I would never have paid whatever. I think it was $600 a bottle at the time for that. Yeah. But can you talk a bit more about your, your favorite champagnes? Um, since you do love the sparkling, if it's only champagne that you like, or if you're a Cremant oh. girl, a Cava girl, a Prosecco girl, we have this thing called sect. I'm sorry, I'm interrupting you again. We have this thing called sect here in Germany, which is sparkling wine. It's garbage. So let's not talk about that. But Not um, all of it is. Not all of it is. It's really bad. It's, it's so sweet. It's so sweet. It's garbage. So um, talk to me about, since you're a big champagne girl, because I know how, how much that the, that Dom pleased you. Talk a bit more about champagne because I could talk about it forever. Uh, so could I. <laughs> um, so I love champagne so much that in my shop, we have a neon sign above the uh, champagne fridge that says, you guessed it, champagne. So <laughs> I think it's something to um, illuminate and highlight. Um, and bubbly champagne doesn't always have to be expensive. Um, I think... Um, one of my favorite non-champagne regions is um, La Franciacorta, which is from Italy, mm-hmm. um, in the northern regions of Lombardia, uh, Lombardy. 
so like north of Milan. Um, they do the same varieties as champagne for the most part. Um, Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, Pinot Blanc. Um, and they make rosé versions. They do vintage. Um, and funny enough, the aging requirements are actually longer than champagne. So um, you know you're getting something quality when it says French Accorda DOCG on there. Um, my favorite producer from French Accorda is Cato Bosco. Cato Bosco, I guess you can say. That means house in the forest uh, translation. And one of their top wines that they make is um, the Cuvée Anna Maria Clemente. And one of the most memorable experiences I have with that wine was with Stephen in Big Sur, California, on the coast, literally on the cliff. We had smoked salmon and like a creamy sort of sauce to go with it. We were sipping that, watching the sunset, and there's truly not much more amazing things in life than that. Um, but then when you go back to Champagne, uh, just to mention one of my favorite like styles or um, categories is grower producer. So uh, there's two big categories in Champagne, the uh, house or maison type Champagne, which is like Dom Perignon, Krug, I'm going to mention Vuclico. Don't drink Vuclico. Yes. <laughs> and it's um, mass. They make millions and millions of bottles of that every year. It's just kind of crazy. Um, there's, there's no reason to pay for that when you can pay for something much more small production, uh, much more made by hand and by people who are truly passionate. So one of my favorite smaller production from a grower, which means that they own their own grapes and their own vineyards and they make their own wine. Maisons do not own their grapes. They buy the grapes from other growers and then they make the wine. So there's some loss of quality in theory with that. Um, not always so, but tends to be. Um, so my favorite grower producer, um, well, I have a few. <laughs> I think my most recent profound champagne that I had was Henri Gutourbe, which is um, a special club producer. And the special club is, this is, sorry, it's so complicated, but <laughs> oh, no, <laughs> there's um, a group, like a collection of 26 different growers that own all their own vineyards and make all their own wine. And they are required to make um, only vintage wine. So most champagnes are actually multi-vintage. They blend from different vintages to get a very consistent product. Um, so Henri Gutierrez was only from one year and they, they harvest all the grapes from there. And they age the wines for a minimum of 15 months uh, on the leaves, which are what makes the wine sparkling. Um, well, it's, yeah, uh, it gives all the wine the flavor, um, and they have to go through a rigorous tasting panel, um, and be like approved. So any special club champagne is guaranteed to be delicious, made by hand and made by people who truly love what they're doing.
Yeah, yeah. You can, well, you can taste the love, taste the joy and taste the love. Like, you yeah. like Mediterranean sunshine in a bottle. Yeah, that's <laughs> what you want to taste, actually. Um, so what do you think is the most overrated wine in the market today? That people oh, here we go. Good about? question. Yeah. Um, so I don't mean to bash anyone's preferences, but... <laughs> I mentioned brands earlier and how California and one of the biggest differences between California and say Europe is the branding and marketing of wines and California is notorious for making mass reduced wines and branding and marketing them and selling them for more than they should be in hundreds of stores across the country, thousands at mass production levels. And I think the biggest offender of that at the highest price point is the Orange Swift, the prisoner wine. Mm-hmm. Um, so Orange Swift used to be um, family owned by him, but he since sold the brand. Um, so when that happens, oftentimes big company, big conglomerate, say Constellation or Gallo or whoever, um, they own so much more than you realize. And when you're supporting those brands, you're directly putting money in just like billionaires' pockets and not supporting the small growers who are truly doing a craft and art form. And the prisoner <laughs> is made in a way to almost like deceive the consumer. It's too much money for what it is. It's it's over extracted, they add coloring to it, they add sugar to it, they add chemicals to it. And they sell that all in a pretty package for around 50 bucks a bottle. And people truly think it's good wine, but it's just mass produced chemical junk with a nice label. And I think we should all drink better than that. So it's like a two buck chuck wrapped up in uh, uh, it's like a two. Yeah, it's like a two-buck truck on steroids. Yes, that's a good way of putting it. Um, so if somebody wanted to start a collection um, to start collecting wine, what is some advice that you could give them? Yeah, i say, um, so if you're really not sure what to buy or what to drink or what to, um, what to put in your cellar, um, I say rather than Googling that information, go to a local wine store and talk to someone there and say, like, I'm looking to buy some wine for my collection, something that I can hang on to. What do you guys recommend in this certain price point? Don't be shy about saying how much you want to spend. There's nothing to be shameful about. That's only going to help the person who's looking to um, offer you assistance in that category. So... But overall, it's like a certain wines that you should invest in. Um, this is Steven's like specialty. He loves this stuff. Um, uh, I say, so my, my top three categories are Rhone, like the Northern Rhone in France, uh-huh. which is raw grape, red grape, um, the Cobra Tea in Saint-Joseph and Croix Hermitage regions are all um amazing for what they can produce and the wines are getting more expensive every year and they tend to be so much more delicious after five to ten years of aging so if a bottle says coat routine 
Sancha Seth or Chris Hermitage, likely that bottle of wine is going to be good to hang on to for a few years. Mm-hmm. And likely it will be under $100, which is pretty cool. Um, and another region is Barolo in Piedmont. Um, the grape there is Nebbiolo. Um, they're not cheap. And unfortunately, they're catching on to be some of the most expensive wines in the world, but um, but there was still a lot of value in that region. So if you see a producer um, named, <laughs> if for some reason you see in the store, Giacomo Conterno mm-hmm. <laughs> or Ira even, or the um, Nebbiolo, absolutely buy that. They will be under $100. They're very tough to find, but there are they are out there. Um, Let's see, another one is Elio Altare Barolo. It's a different style, um, but they are amazing with 10 years of age. And they will be just so rewarding when you hang on to them and open them up later. And they're going to increase in value too. Yeah, yeah, because wine collection is investing uh, in your business, basically. Yeah, yeah. It's better than the stock market these days. Um, I mean, it's a lot safer, that's for sure. Yeah, it definitely is in this COVID time. Can you talk a bit more about um, your shop, Denver Wine Merchant, which is in yeah. Denver that you opened up with Stephen? When did yeah, you it's been... up and why? I mean, I, I know why, but the listeners don't necessarily know why. So can we talk a bit more about it, where it's located, what you have there, how many bottles? You know, you're open. Are you open now? That sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so when COVID happened um, in March of last year, it really hit New York hard. And, and Steve and I were living in Jersey City, just across the river from Manhattan. And we were in this 47th floor of this amazing apartment. And we're like, why are we paying $3,000 in rent? And the city is just shut down. And the restaurant industry is uncertain, so what can we do? <laughs> and we had actually been talking about opening up a store for years at that point. We had um, looked at Manhattan, um, a buying a store in actually the West Village, um, looked at Austin, flew down there and looked at the space. And um, unfortunately, the laws in Austin were so wacky with alcohol that it really didn't benefit um, small like business owners to open up a store in Austin, which is unfortunate. So um, we're thinking about places that we loved and Colorado is one of those places. And we um, came out here in June um, and did some looking around and saw what was on the market and there was a store for sale here like right in the heart of downtown and they had an existing liquor license and a decent space, a new building. And so long story short, we moved out here and bought the, bought the space, um, transitioned ownership and licensing. And we turned the store from a kind of sad, dilapidated man cave into a uh, amazing, comfortable, cozy, high-end wine destination with an amazing wine uh, online store um, that we entirely built ourselves. 
we named it Denver Wine Merchant because it currently did not exist. So we thought that was kind of funny that we uh, would take that name off the market. And we didn't want to be kitschy and name it like something like <clears throat> Crafty Bottle or Bottle and Bitters or something like that. So, um, and now we have, we've owned the store for going on eight months and it's truly come from a night and day transition to this comfortable, like welcoming space with amazing lighting and most importantly, amazing wine at really, really good prices. We're entirely online. Um, we have, um, we increased the inventory by so much and currently we have something like um, over 500 different bottles of wine in the store available. So uh, with a really strong focus on Italy, France, and really, really awesome small production, great wines from California, Oregon, Washington, Australia, Chile, South Africa, um, New Zealand. We have amazing wines from even Germany, of course, and Austria. Um, and we, uh, we don't currently have sect there, but I've had, I've had some sect that are actually decent and dry, so they do exist. Um, but we hope to represent every region um, as best as we can with like the best producers doing things the best way who truly are doing what they love. So it does yeah. align with our, our vision pretty well. Yeah, how big is the space? Um, actually, um, square footage is like 1,500 square feet. That's um, yeah, nothing too large, um, but big enough to have a pretty good selection, yeah. Yeah, and when you have normal hours, do you have tastings there? Do you offer any sort of, you know, cheese plates or anything like that? Or is it strictly just retail? So one thing that we really hope to have um, incorporate into the space is like um, <clears throat> a seating area, like a lounge type feel. And in the back of the store, I put really comfy velvet green couches with like this cool rug and table. I have books back there, candles and lamps and everything. So uh, the idea was to have like um, a space that you can come into and like hang out and taste. Um, but with the current atmosphere, tastings are not necessarily recommended just yet. Um, we can do them on like a private basis when the store is not open. Um, but something we would like to do in the future is host more tastings, um, wine classes, um, industry events here for like the up and coming wine people, um, people who want to learn and geek, geek out with us. Um, we have a massive fridge space, like huge cooler. So one of the things I have in mind is to put like a door of cheeses there. So in the future, if you would like to sit down and have a wine pairing, wine is always better with food. So we thought about having um, a cheese kind of like, like baguette type situation with um, maybe some fruit um, and just kind of hang out back there. Yeah, that sounds wonderful. I hope I hope to visit one day when I when I go to Colorado. I do have some friends in Colorado, and I've 
not been except passing through. That's wonderful. It's wonderful that you, you know, you were able to fulfill a dream that you guys had um, and you just went for it. You're like, why, you know, you could have stayed in New York in your fabulous apartment. Um, but like you said, you know, industry wise, it's the hospitality and restaurant industries have been really, really hit hard. And I'm always pushing, like, we need to help, you know, people who are in these creative and um, hospitality industries because they've been hit the worst out of all of us um, because mm -hmm. the jobs are not there and they can't find new jobs because other people have been laid off from their jobs. So the job market is in America, especially is, is really hard. So I'm all for really pushing that. So if you guys are ever in Denver, go to Denver wine merchant downtown, support uh, your local businesses, small businesses, people who take the time and energy to craft something really unique and really special because we're all, I mean, it's cliche to say we're all in this together because not everybody's in it with us, but mm -hmm. you know, we've got to support each other. So on that, uh, supporting you, uh, I do want to talk about the serious subject that's in the background. Um, wine is sometimes serious, but um, it's, it's a fun subject. Um, this one's a bit, a bit deeper. Um, and uh, yeah, so I wanted to talk about ALS and your diagnosis and what it's been like for you in the past, I guess, year and a half since you've been diagnosed and mm -hmm. how it's affected your life, how it has affected your goals um, and how we can help. So Sally, can you describe mm -hmm. what ALS is? Yep, um, ALS is the worst. Uh, um, it could happen to anyone, um, but mostly men over the age of 50, apparently. <laughs> So I'm unusual to have this uh, situation here. Um, so ALS is um, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease. Um, it's uh, where your nerves just um, start dying off because your brain, um, I mean, the, the, the mechanism is so crazy. But essentially you um, lose the ability to move your muscles over time, so. Um, it's really hard, yeah. But um, rather than sit around and mope, I thought, why not use my time to do what I love and just really kind of work the hardest I could toward my dream, which is owning a wine store. So I. I really just love working hard, going to the store every day and talking about wine. I think that in and of itself is therapeutic and um, there is currently no cure for that. So um, I think what people can do um, is support my wonderful uh, friends at Project ALS. They're based in New York and they're funding research for developing a cure, um, well, a treatment at least, um, and they have a wonderful um, drug going to trial this year called Prostatin, and um, it's really promising, and because of them, I think they've raised upwards of like three million to um, self-fund the trials for this drug, and no, no other organization has been so successful in 
making something actually happen in the form of a treatment. So I think if anyone has um, a moment to visit their website, um, you should go check them out. Um, I believe my story is on there, but either way, um, a donation would be amazing, but just awareness is, yeah. is really yeah. something that needs to be more apparent, so. Yeah, you're saying ALS.com is the website people should go to? Um, ProjectALS.com. ProjectALS.com. Um, did you want to talk a little bit about when you were diagnosed? And you say it can hit anybody. This wasn't yeah. in your family, obviously. It just came out of nowhere. Do you yeah. talk about that at all? Or do you want to you'd be like, no, I don't really want to talk about it because we don't we don't have to if it's too um, uncomfortable. But yeah, I um it's kind of hard, yeah. Yeah, it's okay. It's okay. We can we can leave it at that if if that's enough. And yeah, please, please. Um, I'm gonna get emotional. I'm sorry. Please uh, contribute. Sally's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful human being. She's lovely. She's beautiful on the inside and outside. And if you can help help her and help other people, please. Um, I'm sorry, I'm a journalist, I'm supposed to like keep it in, but it's, it's hard, but I'll be okay. Um, yeah, so it's, it's a tough subject, but I'm glad that you talked about it as much as you felt comfortable to talk about it because it's all about your comfort and, and your needs, because that's what, um, why I wanted to talk to you about wine as well, because you've done a tremendous, tremendous job meeting your goals in such a short time. And I, I hope that there's more, more for you. So yeah. Um, sorry, I got a, got a little, uh, <laughs> out of my journalist character there, but, um, yes, project ALS contribute. I'm going to definitely contribute after this podcast, uh, recording is over. I hope everybody does that. Every little bit can, can go a long way. You may not think it does, but you know, even $5 can go a long way. Let's, let's find a cure. Let's find treatments that can, that can help Sally, Sally and other people. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to say about wine or about yourself and what you're doing about Denver wine merchants? Does Stephen want to pop in and say hi or buy or anything? I, I feel like he's in the background listening in. Is he? I, I think he is. Um, Stephen. <laughs> um well i say um drink more wine <laughs> drink it's more amazing. um try something new um experiment and here's steven <laughs> hello hi steven how are you sorry to bring you in on this this is steven uh washuta right is that how you yep. pronounce your name <laughs> absolutely um yeah and he is um here to support Sally and is also owns Denver Wine Merchant. I don't know if you wanted to say uh, anything about wine or your shop or about Sally before we sign off and I let you guys go and do your thing. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't hear everything, but. Um, you heard enough, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm just, I, I'm super thankful that we have the opportunity to have um, the store and help. And because Sally is just so happy there. Yeah. Uh, it's meant a lot to me. That's like actually really the most rewarding part of it. So 
Um, and we love building the store together. It's been a really great journey and we're only just starting on it. So hopefully somebody in Denver is going to hear this and come check us out. Definitely. Um, yeah, yeah, we're, you know, we're in a great little market here and, um, you know, we're yeah. doing what we can to support like small producers and small businesses like ourselves and, and also to support ALS research and. Yeah. So, yeah, so um, go to Denver Mine Merchant if you're in Denver or if you're flying through Colorado, please support them. Please support their small business. Please support Project ALS. Please support Sally. And thank you so much for listening. And thank you guys so much for um, joining me today and talking about uh, all these subjects because um, you're taking the time out of a very busy, busy schedule to sit down with me. And I really appreciate it. So thank you so much. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you. Now You're Talking with D is hosted, produced, and edited by me, D, with music by Scott Benzelitz. Two-ton weight. I'm trying to get a message to you. The easiest thing just comes to me. And it comes to you. This has been a Best Revenge production.